Almost Awakened podcast, a no-nonsense approach to spirituality with your hosts, Brittany Hartley and Bill Reel. Here we dive deep into the wisdom traditions while acknowledging insightful breakthroughs in science, psychology, and human development. Our goal is to explore the good life and the very best of spirituality, no-nonsense required. Check us out at almostawaken.org, where you can check out past episodes, make a donation, email us a question or comment, or find out more about the resources we shared. And now, today's podcast episode. Britt Hartley, how are you? We are back. I'm so happy to be back. Glad, glad. I was telling you off the air that it feels like I haven't talked to you in six months, but it has only been a month, but it's been a, a crazy month for the Hartley family. Yeah, big month for us, but I'm just so happy to announce that my daughter is home. Um, she's walking, she's talking. Um, she still needs quite a bit of care, like round the clock care yeah. and supervision and lots of therapy and things like that. But no reason that over the long run, we can't make a recovery. And I'm so grateful. I had so many people reach out either from the podcast or clients that I've had who chipped in here and there and, and really helped us this past, this past month as we were navigating all that. But, um, she's home now and, uh, she went to Seattle, uh, children's hospital and, and came back a couple days ago. So, uh, we are good. And I'm just so grateful for this little makeshift community. I had a lot of people really help um, help our family. And I, I couldn't be more grateful. You, you probably had a chance over the last month to think about a lot of things and to have thoughts and, and thought processes that had you thinking about, um, life and humanity, probably a little different than ever before. Yeah, it was a great, um, you know, now that I know that things are going to be good, you know, it's really, yeah. I'm kind of looking back now and um, it's really interesting. I, I noticed things and I also noticed things in myself because this is the first time that I'm going through a traumatic event. Uh, you know, for those who may be tuning in for the first time, my, my daughter had a traumatic brain injury. And this is the first time that I've gone through a traumatic event outside of kind of a religious community. And so, yeah, lots of things. Um, Lots of things to think about and things that I feel like I, I made a lot of growth in um, and things that were still hard. And yeah, a lot of things to talk about today. So we're going to talk about religion in times of trauma because I was just really like overwhelmed with all the religious kind of support during mm. times of trauma. And I was just kind of like tagging all that and keeping track of that. And then, yeah, the, you know, the the questions that I'm still, you know, just thinking about as we had this month off. And man, for you and me both, discussions like this where we can talk things out, it's a part of our spirituality. So as of now, I'm not taking any clients. You know, I'm not presenting at Sunstone. I recorded those. I'm not. Um, I had a bunch of little projects. So everything's off the table except for this podcast. And it's not just because I have an obligation to this podcast that it's really because this, these conversations are important, an important part of my spiritual life. And for you too, I know yeah. that this, these conversations are important for our spirituality. So I'm back. I, I love <laughs> it. I'm glad, glad you're back. And so for folks, by the way, there were several folks who did reach out and wanted to participate 
helping out cover some ground while you were away to do some guest episodes. And I, I promise you, I've been super busy. I want to follow up with each of you. Um, even though Britt is back, Britt and I talked off the air. I'll, I'll reach out to a few of you and, and see if we still can't put something together. So bear with me on that. Um, let's do this. So you talked about that these conversations are important. And as I was looking over your outline for today, there, there's so many things here I connect with. Um, so why don't you get us started and, and we'll kind of take it from there. Yeah. So the first, you know, there's lots of things to, to think about and talk about when you're in a, you know, in a family situation with a trauma, but I really, you know, for the, the sake of this podcast, I'm focusing just on the spiritual things. And so what was really interesting is, you know, I live in Boise. It's a very religious area. Most of my friends and family, um, maybe not my good friends and family, but most of my friends and family are active in some kind of organized religion in the area. And I, I noticed, especially when I was at the hospital, just how much religious covering was around support for me and for my family. And it just seemed like it was like constant. And so because, you know, my small group of friends that I like to hang out with, you know, it's, it's not as, you know, it's not kind of couched in organized religion. It was really interesting to see, um, just kind of everything that religions do for people in times of trauma. Um, as I'm watching everybody kind of process what was going on in my family. And so the first thing that you always think of is that when you're in a time of trauma, if it's you or, you know, a friend and you're a believing person, prayer is going to be the first thing. So I had hundreds of people, you know, I'm praying for your family. I'm praying for your family every day, every day, me and my kids are praying for my praying for your family. And I say, thank you. <laughs> you know, I, it's meant as like, a, I'm thinking of you. Yeah. I don't like use that up as use that as an opportunity to say, well, you know, what do you believe about prayer? And let's deconstruct that. Um, but I noticed just how soothing it was for people like that you know, they wanted to do something for me. They maybe knew me or cared about me. And so they said a prayer for me and it made them feel better. Like I'm praying for you. I'm doing something for you. Every day, my family's praying for you, putting your name in the temple, things like that. And I just noticed how soothing that was for people. And so I guess my question is for you, like when you were more active, was prayer a soothing ritual for you? Did you find yourself in times of trouble, like really soothed by saying a prayer or saying a prayer for a person? So, um, yeah, I mean, when, when I was a believer, certainly prayer was important. I can remember moments in my life where I went out of my way and I, I'm going to, I want to tie that because I'm, I'm stumbling here for a moment because um, in the believing moment, when you go to say a prayer for somebody, you think you're doing something significant for the other person. And I felt like I was doing something significant. I hesitate and stumble there because now I'm on the other side of things. And uh, I don't mean this, I don't mean this offensively to anyone listening. You know, I don't know if you have anyone that's, you know, that's been part of this process that now tunes in and watches the show, or I, I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings, but I now say this phrase that thoughts and prayers are the least that you can do for somebody like literally. And, mm -hmm. and what I mean by that is if you're literally going to do something for someone, you're going to move in the world and something's going to be accomplished thoughts and prayers from the perspective of a person who doesn't believe they have any real effect other than placebo meditation, 
uh, calming down your central nervous system, um, which are all great things. But in terms of actually doing something for another human being who's a thousand miles away or 500 miles away or 50 miles away, it really is to the unbeliever the very least that you can do. Mm -hmm. And um, often in the first half of life, nobody really teaches us empathy. We kind of connect some dots growing up. We kind of figure out like there's something there, but we're really not taught empathy. We're taught sympathy. And in the faith system that you and I came from, sympathy is all over the place. Um, but what sympathy does is it really doesn't, it doesn't really get into um, the rough stuff with you. It stays at a distance and it it's willing to help you, but from a distance. And when someone today says, hey, I'm going to say a prayer for you, it feels to me like they, they care, they want to help, but they either can't exactly do something that really does help or they don't know what to do to help. Mm -hmm. And, and so we have this language as human beings that gives people permission to feel better about mm -hmm. themselves as they offer sympathy from a distance. But if it's not attached to anything else, it really never gets in the hole with the person. Yeah, it was really interesting to see how my friends and family went about this because prayer is one of the things that religions do in times of trauma. It it's it is a soothing ritual, um, and so I had people in my post Mormon group who knew that uh, who knew me well enough to know that if they said I prayed for you, it just wouldn't maybe mean this <laughs> the same as it used to. And so I watched them kind of try to figure out how can I show love for this person without saying sending thoughts and prayers, right? Yeah. And and they create they came up with the most beautiful things I had, and and I'm not talking about even material things, you mm -hmm. know, bringing dinner and things like that. I had a friend um, who lit a candle and took a picture of it, and she sent it to me, and she just said, "I lit this candle, and I just was thinking of you and just wishing good." and intentions for you and your family. And she just sent that to me. And it was a beautiful, I got it. And it kind of shocked me because it was this beautiful kind of secular prayer. Like here's a picture of a candle. I took a moment out of my day. It may not mean anything. It may not change anything, but I was thinking of you. And that was beautiful. You know, that was beautiful. And then there were other people who really were, t you know, telling me how much they were praying. But what surprised me was when I was a believer, I really didn't pray a lot for other people because I was still, even in that phase, I was still kind of mind effed as far as like, is God like counting prayers? That can't be right. What about people who pray yeah. and then their kid dies? And like, so I never wanted to say anything because then if they didn't get better, then it would mean that I wasn't faithful enough. And I was so overwhelmed with that mess, even as a believer, that it wasn't a soothing ritual for me even then. Yeah. Um, but I noticed for how many people, um, it, it really did seem, it, I, I could tell by the way that they were saying it, that it helped them process what was happening um, by saying that, you know, I was praying for you. And I guess that was just really interesting for me to like watch how people did that. Two other thoughts on this. I, I think, again, religious systems, which were a much more crucial than government systems if we go back far enough, right? 
there were religious systems probably long before there were government systems. And those religious systems were trying to give us a way to sit with the collective trauma of others and our community. And so by saying, I, you know, I'm going to say a prayer for you. You're in my thoughts. You're in my prayers. It does, it, because I, I know that as this whole situation was going on over the last month, especially early on, you know, I was reaching out to you every day and just checking on you, see how things were going. But I don't, I don't know what to say. I don't, I don't know what the words are. And I want to let you know that I, and I'm, and I know, you know, tons of other people are also sitting with what you're going through. Um, not that they could experience it, not that they can feel what you're feeling, but that we humans want to somehow connect and go like, Hey, I know you're going through a hard thing. I just want you to know that it's, it's something I'm trying in some weird way to also hold with you. Mm-hmm. And, and when people say, you know, you're in, you're in my thoughts and prayers, I, I think it's an effort to want to hold that trauma with you. Mm-hmm. And, and I think there's value in that. Um, mm. I, I have better tools for it today. I will literally sit next to somebody, put an arm around them and go, that has to be really hard. I, I was in a, a party uh, four or five days ago. I met this, a uh, woman for the very first time, her name was Shauna and it was her house. And I'm in the pool and we're talking, there's 50 people around, but they're all doing their own thing. They got their own conversations. And I said, Hey, Shauna, I don't know you. I said, I'd really like to get to know a few people tonight. Would you tell me about you? And um, she said she had lost her husband a year earlier. And uh, I said, is it helpful for you to talk about it or do you prefer not to? Because most of the time we assume the other person, we're going to bother them by asking. And so we don't. My reality is I think most people want to talk about it. So again, sympathy says we stay away and go like, oh, that's horrible. Let's move on to another topic. Empathy is let's let's dive into it. So I, I asked her the question and she said, um, I, I, want, I, I want to talk about it and nobody will. And I said, yeah, I lost a mom three years ago. I'd love to hear what it is you'd like to share. And so for 25 minutes, we talked about her husband passing. Um, empathy is sitting next to somebody and holding their hand and sitting in the trauma that they're feeling. And I think thoughts and prayers is the best we've got until somebody teaches us a better way. Mm-hmm. Second thing really quick, and that was a long moment, but second thing really quick is the vagus nerve, which is when we were, you know, in, uh, the forest living with in tribal systems hundreds of thousands of years ago, when a, a weird noise happened that we th- couldn't explain, or when a noise happened that we recognized as being a predator, when some threat came upon us, uh, we would enter fight or flight. And uh, um, what happens is the higher functions of the brain move down to the lower functions of the brain. You end up in lizard brain you're simply trying to survive. You can't really make calculated decisions. Logic is uh, diminished and emotional reaction is increased. And when the threat would subside, our breathing would go from this adrenaline heightened to a much more calmer breathing. The breathing alone, because of evolution, the breathing alone can trick our system into thinking flight or fight is gone. So when traumatic things are happening, whether the person experiencing trauma, like you in this situation that you've experienced over the last month, or people wanting to help you, 
there is this positive benefit in feeling better about everything because you're, when you pray, you're essentially meditating, you're essentially slowing your breath down, you're calming down, you're having this calm conversation generally with God in the midst of a hard thing happening. And so by calming your breathing, it connects with your vagus nerve, which then uh, your your central response system, your your central nervous system reacts to that slowed down breathing as perceiving that the threat is diminished or gone. And so everything is calmer. You're able to get back into your logic brain and be able to make uh, intelligent decisions. So when people say like, I was panicky and I said a prayer and suddenly I could come up with this answer or that answer, it's because your system calmed down, at least in part. And so I, I don't want to all say there's no value in prayer. When I say on one hand, it's the, the absolute least you can do for someone, I mean it. And I also recognize there are benefits in it for the person you're praying for, not because there's magic involved, and for the person doing the praying, not because there's magic involved. Yeah, exactly right. That I'm not diminishing like, oh, look at all these dumb friends that I have and family members who were praying for me. Right. Um, because it really does. I have a friend, for example, when in times of stress, she um, kind of meditates about her problems and then she like imagines giving them to Jesus. And it's this huge stress reliever, right, in her life. And um, like you're saying, that's real. Jesus doesn't have to be really anything for that to work. Like I genuinely believe when she does that, she experiences real stress relief, right? And you and I are trying to do it in ways that are more, um, you know, intellectually compatible with where our beliefs are now. But it really did do, I was just really taken aback by um, how integral prayer was as a soothing ritual, both for people going through it and people who are reaching out to me. Um, that it really is one of the things that religions do, right? Prayer, some form of prayer is built into any religion. And remember, folks, that uh, religion on some level, again, I'm not saying it's entirely, but a religion on some level was meant to uh, hijack one's individual journey and um, create new boundaries around it so that people would be uh, willing to sacrifice for the collective good and society would perpetuate. And so on some level, religion takes a lot of uh, mechanisms that would lead to us doing inner work inside and it um, hands it over to the collective society to create new rules, boundaries, and mechanisms that always make that tribe surviving more important. And so it, it makes sense that prayer would have been turned into something that got away from meditation, which is much more inner. I meditate and any experiences I have, any thoughts I have, any insights I have, um, any growth I have is going on inside of me. Um, prayer is a religious mechanism inside religion that often takes some of that, uh, gives you essentially a similar mechanism in terms of breathing, being calm, um, having kind of a meditative state, but then all the consequences and repercussions of that are, are much more focused on the collective good of the society or the tribe rather than the individual work. And um, anyway, I, I, that's probably a yeah. rambling point, but at least to know. No, it, it leads us to our next point. So I have a list here of kind of what religions do in times of trauma. And I'm just kind of noticing each one as I go. And some things I feel like I have a secular replacement for this that is working great, right? So for prayer, I feel like I have a secular replacement for all these tools that I don't have to play the mind game of 
praying to God? Am I worthy enough to ask for God to heal my child? And I don't have to do any of that mess, right? I've taken out the tool from all kind of the bullshit around it. And I feel like I have a good secular alternative. But some things in my list that I have of what religions do in times of trauma, um, I don't have a great secular replacement for it yet. And the next one that we're going to talk about is kind of what you were talking about, which is not just prayer, but gathered prayer, gathered in mm. intention. So not prayer by yourself, but prayer as creating an intention socially, which is really powerful. So um, there are very few socially acceptable ways in America to do this outside of religion, to gather as a people, say an intention and kind of go out with that intention. Right. And like you're talking about, we have we have records of these kinds of rituals all the way going back to when we were forest people. Uh, men would gather together and do some kind of ritual before a hunt to kind of, okay, we're setting an intention. Everybody, you know, we have the same goal in mind. This is where everybody's going. And it creates something almost like a, it, it creates a, a spiritual bond between these hunting groups or war groups or whatever you're doing as a group. And so I, I do think I have a great secular alternative for prayer. But if I were, for example, in a church and this had happened in my, in my church, in my congregation, um, people in the church over the pulpit would have said a prayer for me, like it would have happened. And everyone would have kind of been joined together in the intention of supporting me during this time of trouble or whatever. And I don't have a great secular replacement for that. I have friends that like, uh, you know, like a girl group text. And um, of course, they're checking in and um, doing a ton for me. And um, I even had a one of the best things was I had a group of girlfriends that just said, okay, I'm going to give you three options. Do you want us to check in and talk a lot? Do you need space? Do you need, you know, they gave me a list of options. How mm. would you like us to show up for you? And I could just pick a number and I just said, number three sounds great. And they could just show up in that way. That was amazingly helpful. Mm. But as far as like gathering people together, gathering kind of my family together with the intention of um, hoping for the best and how do we, uh, how do I figure out my schedule and all this kind of stuff? I didn't have a great secular replacement for that. Thoughts? Yeah. Um, it, maybe only tangentially a prayer, prayer in that kind of setting. What I think it accomplishes is it says it, it lets the person know, Hey, I'm aware of you. Like, like, even though it hasn't been talked about for two days, I'm still thinking of you. And the other thing it does is it reminds everyone else to have it enter back into their conscious awareness. So you're essentially announcing what, if you're saying like, Hey, let's, uh, you get your arms folded and your eyes closed and please bless the Hartley family. You're also reminding the rest of the congregation and you're right. I, I don't know of a thing that does that other than I'm surrounded by really good humans who seem to do a pretty decent job in hard moments of, you know, a group of 20 friends and anytime one person is having a rough time, that person seems to get several text messages on a regular basis from those people. And there were times where in a text group with our friends, we would text away from the person who's having the issue and just remind each other like, hey, I, I just I just got a feeling so-and-so's having a rough day. Um, you know, I just got off the phone with them. And I can just tense some, you know, sense some anxiety. Yeah. Maybe, you know, we'll love bomb each other. 
Yeah, and, I'm sure uh, that that happened. The only thing I can think of is sometimes, like, let's say you're, you're, you're a community and you're looking for a child. We had a child that got lost in the canals here. And people gathered together and lit a candle. And that's that's kind of a second, like, you don't have to have any religious beliefs to show up in a field with other people and light a candle. And all it does is it's signaling to the parents that, like, we are here and whatever you need and, um, you know, that we can't imagine this happening. You know, it says a lot of things without anything supernatural. So, so sometimes, like, people have candle vigils and that, that can be, like, a secular way to create intention as a as an interfaith community or as a, as a secular community. But yeah, that one, I, I don't have a great secular replacement other than um, the technology is such that me and my small community can check in quite a bit, you know? Yeah. It, it is. I am on this half of life. I am much more sensitive to uh, trauma experienced by other people. And I try again, we're all doing what we do and not doing what we don't think to do or, or don't want to do, but um, I'm trying to be more in tune with that and to reach out to people on a regular basis. When I sense someone's having a rough time uh, in, including critics of the faith I came from, you know, I, I reached, I had a person who's a defender of the faith who lost their mother just after I lost mine. And even to this day, every, every four or five months, I'll just reach out to this person who in some way sees me as an enemy and just say, Hey, I'm thinking about you. We, we've gone through something similar and, uh, and, uh, I, I can't imagine how hard it is for, for you. So, um, but you're right. We don't have a perfect thing. So maybe for the audience, you know, for the couple thousand people who listen to these podcasts, uh, if you've got some kind of replacement for that, we'd love to hear it. Yeah. So the next one, the next thing that religions do in times of trauma is a service system. And this is one, especially from for the religion that we came from. Uh, it's really what it's known for. And that is that, you know, if someone in a congregation is going down um, and struggling, you have this kind of sign up sheet movement that we're all just gonna, yep, we got, we got, um, meals for you, especially. And it's just this really easy way to get kind of a service train going. And if you are, um, I really was overwhelmed with the idea of going through this kind of right after, kind of deciding to step away from organized religion because there's a space in between your old community and your new community where looking back, I was a little bit vulnerable. So if something bad would have happened to my family, I wouldn't have had a lot of support. Um, and that's something that I do. I, I, you know, I am mindful of. And so, you know, I do have a secular replacement for that now, which is just a really good friend who, goes up on sign up genius and sends a, you know, sends a group text and everybody signed up for a meal. And for three weeks, I did not go to the grocery store and um, I was just really well taken care of. And that is hard. You know, I've done that because I've specifically gone after, like, I want a tribe. I want, I left organized religion. I need to find a new tribe. But if I hadn't have done that, um, I wouldn't have had that, you know, I just wouldn't have had that. And so, 
you know, that is one thing that religions do is that if you show up in a new town and you're a part of this religion, you're automatically signed up into the service train. And that is valuable. You know, that is valuable. And um, until you kind of do the work to, to replace that, you really can be vulnerable in those situations. Yeah. Um, service. This will also sound offensive. I hope people can connect with this service on the front half of life within a religious system often involves some sort of feeling obligated and feeling um and and things being done by assignment right everyone's going to share we you know we've all agreed to mourn with those that mourn and comfort those that stand in need of comfort so we're all going to take a day and do something to help out this family in our ward or a congregation that's struggling and um on this half of life there isn't there isn't that. I mean, we we could still hand out assignments, but we all kind of know, like, I, I don't have to do anything I don't want to do, and I get to do whatever I do want to do within reason. Um, but again, just like in the other answer, I've, I've got a lot of good friends, and when those friends have ran into something, I know one friend lost some loved ones in a tragic accident, and uh, friend, we put together a thing where we all showed up at their house and we essentially had a party and we just laughed and talked and had snacks and just spent three or four hours just being around each other. Um, we had friends who needed uh, a major project in their, in their yard. And so they organized all of us to come over and, and to help them out with that. Um, if you have a community of friends and those friends are, are real, they're not, not friends by assignment. If those are real friends, you can still kind of organize those things. And I saw that with your situation. It seemed like there was a significant number of people who banded together to be able to help you have um, daily things that needed taken care of done so that you could put your focus on what was going on with your family. Yeah, it's almost like religion gave me a really good outline as far as what humans need. And eventually when I decided to step away, I had the outline of like, okay, I need rituals. I need people. I need intention. I need da, da, da. You know, you have the whole list because religions really give us, they were designed to give humans what they need. And then you go about trying to do that better. So yes, I do. I did benefit from a service system, but I have a better one now because it's people who genuinely wanted to show up for me and they don't have any kind of eternal reward for that. It was genuinely um, out of just thought and concern and love for me. And I could tell because some of the gifts that were given to me, it wasn't just, you know, I just, I don't know how many times, you know, in the religion I came from, you know, I gave a basket of like spa things, you know, lotions and da da da, and I give it to someone, I put it on their doorstep and I check something off. But, you, you know, these were like real, real things someone knew me and thought of me when they saw this thing and they would drop it off. Right. And, and so I do think this is one that I have replaced, but it's only because I specifically went out and said, I need a post-religious community and there's not one in Boise. So I'm going to make one. And if I hadn't have done that, I wouldn't have had the support that, that I had. Right. Um, 
you built so, the, yeah. you built a community that could then help each other out later on. Not, yeah, not happened. for that purpose. You know, I, I knew know. that I needed these people, but no. but I hoped and and I hope for my community going forward that if this would have happened to anyone, that we would all do the same, right? Yeah, and that I would do the same for any of the people in there too. So yeah, love it. Ended up working out. So the next one, it's similar, but a support system for children. So I was, I listened to a lot of things. There were a lot of nights in the hospital when she was, you know, unconscious for about two weeks. So there's a lot of times in the hospital where I was just kind of listening to podcasts or reading something. And I was listening to one about happiness levels for women uh, or for people who decide to have children. And so deciding whether or not to have children or if children will make you happier depends on a lot of factors. So, um, so for the first few years, usually if you check in, they have these studies where they give you a text throughout the day, like how happy are you on a scale of one to 10? And those first few years of kids, happiness goes down because there's just a lot, right? For women, it goes down a lot for men, a little less so. And then for women who have support systems and raise children with government, social, family support, happiness levels go up. So the country where having the having kids is the most devastating to a woman's happiness in developed nations is the United States. So churches often provide the only social support for raising children communally. And it is, we're really finding that it is so bad for women's health to sit in a house by themselves with screaming children. And somehow we've just like written this into the American dream because the American dream was specifically created for white men, right? That the white man goes to work and then he comes home and she's making dinner in her heels and, you know, taking care of the kids. When we look historically, women have always worked with other women with their children around. That's how we raised children, right? Even when we were in the forest. And so you look at other countries and women who have a support system are happier when they have a couple of children, when they have children around. But if you don't have a support system, especially as a woman, your happiness goes way, way, way down. It's just not good for your mental, emotional, physical health. And so we had to have a lot of support for childcare as my husband and I were switching off at the hospital. And sometimes we had to both be there. Mm -hmm. And I was really overwhelmed for how hard that would have been if we, um, if we didn't have other non-religious support systems. So, you know, friends, um, we have extended family in the area that we're familiar with our kids. But if we had just moved to a new city and didn't have anyone, like I may have shown up at some local church just specifically because I would have needed the help. Like there is in America, the only, you know, sometimes the only support system for raising children communally and women helping women helping other women raise children and covering for each other um sometimes that only comes in the local religion and that's something that we you know need to be aware of because that's a huge need yeah totally um it is interesting again religion does a great job of of this and again it's it's some sort of obligation and some sort of assignments that are usually happening i, I often imagine you know again 200,000 years ago where we were you know out on the 
the the the terrain and living in whatever huts or whatever we were in and if something tragic happened to a parent uh, or uh, a child and other children need to be cared for there's just a way of like everybody just fills in and does it um, because as you point out modern society and as you noted the united states uh, isolates us away from each other that it really makes it hard to have have the relationship in place to begin with where someone's willing to give that much, right? They're willing to go from sympathy to empathy. Um, Cause sympathy, again, no offense. Sympathy is dropping a casserole off the door. Mm -hmm. um, and empathy is taking the kid back to your house and watching them for a couple of days while these parents deal with something else. Um, and so, yeah, we again need to come up with, if we're really going to be on this planet a thousand years from now and be better at it, We've got to come up with some sort of mechanism that gets us to form relationships better with our neighbors uh, and to have friends of a quality that they would, in a heartbeat, drop the things they're doing and fill in to help cover someone else's traumatic event. Yeah, and this would be one where I would say there's a big gap as far as secular replacements. Um, you know, when I was in a church, there were multiple opportunities a week where I would be teaching some kind of moral education to someone else's kids and some other adult would be teaching my kids. So you have multiple adults in this community teaching, hopefully some form of moral living, right? Um, for a variety of children that are, you know, some are yours, but some are not yours, right? And there is not yet a secular replacement for that. And even in post, one of the biggest complaints that I get in for post-religious communities is that it's great for adults. You get together, you have a beer, you do some trauma bonding. Um, once in a while, you know, maybe you plan some spiritual thing, but then there's nothing for the kids, you know? Right. There's right. nothing we've been gathering for years now and we've never done anything for the kids. And so some, you know, we'll try to do things like uplift, you know, when we had John Ogden on mm -hmm. um, and people are trying to form these little communities where you have a lesson so that children hear from another voice that's not just yours. But we haven't figured this out in secular society, which is how to kind of support raising children together when you're not bound by worshiping the same God. We haven't figured that out yet. And so that was just one thing that I was aware of. Yeah. And the sooner we figure it out, the better, because again, the world is just unfolding in front of us and some people have worse luck than others. Sure. People are making choices and there's consequences for choices, but generally when it comes to tragedy, it's just luck of the draw. And some folks have minor tragedy in their life and some people have severe tragedy one after the other. And there needs to be a way in place that we all kind of agree to collectively carry it. It's the reason we have, as you mentioned, white men before, it's the reason we have patriarchy and racism and sexism and um, homophobia, because there's a certain amount of trauma that is agreed, it is collectively agreed upon that the average human is going to experience. And none of us want to feel it. And so some of us are in privileged positions where we get to choose to carry less of it and impose that someone else carry more. And we've got to get to a place where we collectively agree to help each other carry the trauma that is just part of being a human being 
on a rock flying through space and all that comes with it because it's all chaos. Um, and, and we've got to come up with solutions. And so, yeah, let this is one, um, whether it's, you know, taking care of an individual who can't take care of themselves in these moments, whether it's taking care of children so that parents can focus elsewhere, we have to build a better system that does this. Yeah. Again, better. And it may have to do like, because worshiping a God um, is just really, really good for combining a people with a common goal. And so you teach each other's kids because you have a holy book, right? It's just set up for that. We may not ever have like a big secular replacement like that. And so you kind of have to piecemeal it together. So I'm thinking of each kid and I have one kid who does karate and that karate instructor gives him like fantastic Bruce Lee lessons, you know, honor and responsibility and be like water. And I really, um, I wasn't sure if like, you know, karate would be a good fit for him, but it ended up being very um, kind of founding for his personality. He liked the structure. He liked the responsibility. And so it's this little community for him where he's getting teachings about being a good human from an adult man that he really respects. This really cool guy, handlebar mustache, really cool karate guy. Right. And then for my daughter, you know, she doesn't go to, Bible camp or anything like that. And so she goes to Girl Scouts, which is once a week after school. And again, it's another adult other than me teaching her about friendship and being kind and all these things. And I either pay or, or give my time or whatever I need to do to support it. So these two kids are getting these positive voices in another place. And it's not under one roof and it may not ever be under one roof for secular societies. Um, but at least you can try to like piecemeal that together so that your kids are getting more voices than just you. Yeah, totally. Totally agree. All right. So the next one is the next thing that religions do in times of trauma is a story for suffering. So we have evidence that says that people um, like people will say that they're better now because of a bad thing that's happened to them. But when you actually look at their lives and try to gather data, things really haven't, they really haven't changed that much. And sometimes trauma really changes you for the worse, you know, for your life. But the story is important because the story creates this kind of self-fulfilling prophecy. If you have a story that suffering makes you worthy of the kingdom of God or suffering makes you kinder. That's a common story we hear or suffering reminds you of what's important. Um, whatever the story you have around suffering, you can actually make that story come true just by believing in it. And so what, what stories do is gives suffering a kind of box to work with instead of this overwhelming feeling of life sucks and then you die, which is just like, when you have that feeling, it just sucks the life out of you, right? And so if you have too much suffering with too little story, you have a low pain tolerance. Like everything hurts all the time and you're just suffering all the time. You can't handle it. And if you have too little suffering in your life because you've been a spoiled princess and very privileged, you can also have a low pain tolerance. So you have this like magical in-between where like mm. a normal amount of suffering with a good story around it to contain it actually gives you high pain tolerance, builds your character, you can be able to handle it. And so the atheist story um, around suffering, because they're trying to have some kind of suffering without God, this is one that I've heard Sam Harris say, is that 
good can, some good can come out of terrible situations. Just be aware of some good that can happen out of this, right? Uh, the Buddhist story is, you know, that the Taoist farmer and, you know, good luck, bad luck, who's to say, you know, you just kind of pull yourself back from expectation that that gives you a box for your suffering. And so it was really interesting to watch how um, really people's stories around suffering. And for some people, maybe that story was this happened because God's calling me back to relationship with him. I had someone say that to me, which was very interesting, mm. which was like, oh, your story for suffering is that God sends it to people so that you go back to church. That's your story for suffering, right? That's, mm. you know, that's not my story for suffering. And mm -hmm. so it is important though, as, and I do this with clients a lot, as you leave organized religion, you do have to have some story or way to contain suffering. Otherwise, it can be so overwhelming that you really just get this attitude of everything sucks and then you die, which is not great. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I think of the story of, you know, Joseph, um, coat of many colors, Joseph, you know, and on the front end of the story, there's all these horrible things happening. And, but, but by the end of the story, he's on top and he's the one who gets to determine what happens to all the other people in the kingdom, you know, and stories are meant to tell us to hold on. Like there's better things ahead. The story is meant to give us examples of other people who have carried similar heavy things. Um, that's of value. Um, all of these narratives are crucial. Uh, I remember reading up on the science of like how other species deal with being bumped into. Um, the only, they say the only animals that carry trauma with them are domesticated animals in humans. Uh, that the wild, you know, the wild species out there, when something traumatic happens, they shake it off. So for instance, if a, I said this in a podcast before, but if a, a duck gets kind of bumped into by another duck and squawked at, he just swims a little distance away and flaps his feathers, kind of shakes it out, and then moves on. Um, we humans, because of story and narrative, because of the way we built our system uh, as systems, we carry this stuff with us. And having story that shares other examples of people who have suffered uh, gives us an example to go like, oh, it isn't just me. Like, this person had to carry that too. And they may be, in fact, I know they are, made up myth stories, uh, highly embellished at the very least, and almost entirely myth most likely, is, is that you still have these examples that have set a precedent for how to see it. So I remember lots of times in my life, if something was going on, I would go back to the scriptures, and um, I'd go back to the scriptures, and I would find stories of someone going through the thing I'm going through, and then read about that person and have some sort of outline for how I could move forward through whatever it was, or at least have the, the sense that other people have carried the same thing. So I'm, I'm not, it's not like a unique thing I'm doing. There is no trauma in this world that any one of us can experience that a million people across the hundreds of thousands of years haven't experienced it as well. So, yeah. I think what I noticed, this is one where I have to kind of, uh, I'm just going to say it like I patted myself on the back a little bit. All of the discussions that we've had about Buddhism and you and I for years have been discussing, you know, secular forms of Buddhism for because what Buddhism really does the best is like deals with suffering. 
And what I noticed was if I would have gone, um, like if I would have had this happen to me 10 or 15 years ago, I would have had a lot of suffering around like my child can't die. That's not fair. I was doing everything right. I was supposed to be blessed. Why would this happen? Why would God do this to me? What can I do to earn God's favor so that my child will da, 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 right? And I, I have done so much inner work on accepting what is. And some of that was really painful, right? Some of what is, as far as like the nature of reality, like really sucks to look at. Like the amount of suffering, the amount of senseless, senseless suffering, the poverty, the child cancer, right? Like some of this stuff is really, really heavy. But the years of work that I've done to just accept what is without expectation caused a lot less suffering during this traumatic event. So in Buddhism, they talk about two arrows, right? The first arrow is bad stuff's going to happen to you and there's nothing you can do about it. And the second arrow is like your mind spiraling, right? About it shouldn't have been this way and, you know, this shouldn't have happened to me and this kind of stuff. And I really felt that I wasn't having any second arrow suffering. I, you know, if my child was going to die, then she was going to die. If she was going to be brain dead, then she was going to be brain dead. And I, I deeply in each day just kind of felt myself accepting what is without a lot of resistance, which was super new for me. It wouldn't have been how I would have reacted 10 years ago. And so a lot of the kind of Buddhist things that we've talked about, about just um, watching your resistance and not resisting what is, um, that was a really hard road to go down. But I can see in this situation, it caused me a lot less suffering. The first arrow suffering was still there. So that first week that you checked in on me, you know, I had to cancel the podcast. My brain wasn't working. I was in shock. Um, that's all first arrow stuff. I couldn't help any of that. That just, you know, that's just how I was responding to first arrow pains. But I had, I didn't have a lot of resistance and internal chatter to what was happening. And I think that was because of all the internal work that I did around um, accepting what is without resistance. Mm, great, great point. Um, I don't necessarily have anything to add to that. I, I definitely think there are tools on this side of life that have been deeply helpful um, that I wouldn't have had five or 10 years ago. Yeah, it was, um, it was interesting to watch that I was just really accepting of whatever was happening. All right. So the next thing that I really noticed was, and this was really interesting to watch. So in hospitals, there are chaplains. And so the system, in this case, the hospital system is really set up for believers. And they also talked to, to, to non-believers, but they were both people of faith, the people who came and visited me. And there are humanist chaplains who, um, who can come and talk to you, uh, especially in bigger cities where you have a higher, you have a higher percentage of people who are non-believers. Um, but it was very interesting that in a hospital system, which is a very like science centered place, right? This is a lot of science going on here. And then the chaplains would come in and want to pray with you. And I found that super interesting. And so, um, 
it was it was just really interesting to watch because you know they must have some data that shows i haven't looked at it but they must have some data that shows that you know having a chaplain is really great for your overall you know team of care um and these chaplains there was one time where i was really bored we were waiting for an mri machine and i was with the chaplain and there was a part of me that's like ooh maybe this chaplain will let me like challenge their faith and maybe he'll go at it with me and then i just thought no i'm just going to leave him alone <laughs> I don't want to do that to him, but um, it was interesting to see how chaplains were really um, kind of a part of this process. Um, and I didn't really know how to, I, I didn't really know how to interact with them. What would you do? So you're, what would you do if, you know, something happened to, uh, you know, one of your kids or your wife and like a, a chaplain comes in and he's at some divinity school and he wants to talk, would you talk to him? I probably would. Uh, I'm like you where I probably would have all these thoughts in my head that in the middle of dealing with trauma and just being grateful for whatever support anyone in this place is giving, I would also be in my head trying to figure out like, how do I engage this person in a way that uh, gives, you know, just gives me a chance to maybe see if I can add something to the way he sees things. Um, I, I probably would engage and, uh, I'm just sitting here thinking about things because I've done the same thing you have. I've been in situations where the chaplain's coming around and wanting to do a prayer. Generally, what I've done is I've accepted it, knowing it doesn't have the effect he thinks it does, but willing to let the process just be what it is. So it was f the first time I met the chaplain. So I walk into this big trauma room. It was like, you know, the, the day that it happened. And there's probably 30 people in this kind of like giant trauma room. And I walk in and um, the chaplain is the first one to greet me. And so instantly I just kind of flip out because like if the chaplain's coming to talk to me, is it because like my child's dead or something? And so I instantly like was really freaked out by it. But then he said, you know, you have my thoughts and prayers. Can I pray, pray with you? And I think it was probably because I was a little bit irritated that he was the first one to talk to me just because it threw me off. But I, I remember I did say to him, I don't want to, I'll, I'm an atheist, I'll take your thoughts, but I don't want your prayers. And um, it was a little bit snappy just because I was in a mood and he just really caught me off guard. And later on, I thought about talking to him, but I just knew myself, I knew I would get into a debate with this poor person who's just walking around a hospital trying to pray with people and you know, who am I to throw that guy off? And I decided better of it, but I really wanted to talk to him. I ended up not, but it was interesting that they're there, right? They're there in a hospital, you know, they're doing all these tubes and all these kind of medical procedures. And then some stranger walks in and offers to pray with you. It's, it was just very interesting, like that we still have that in a very scientific place with a lot of medicine and, you know, all that kind of stuff. It was just really interesting to see that as part of the process that, okay, this is just normal that a stranger walks in and prays with you. I think a believer gets comfort from that. But I remember being an active believing Latter-day Saint. And when the uh, clergyman or chaplain came in representing some other faith, it obviously wasn't mine. Um, I kind of was already dismissing in my head anyway. Mm. So unless it was my religious guy coming in, yeah. Um, it, I already was in a headspace where I'm like, yeah, that guy's not going to do any good for me. It's just wasting his time. 
Yeah. He doesn't he's, have a priesthood. He's just he's just playing church over there. Yeah, yeah, he's just playing church. <laughs> and you know, he doesn't have a priesthood. He can't put oil on my head. He can't do these yeah. things that we do in our faith system. So, right. Um, but I think for a lot of folks, they're in Protestantism, and if someone comes in representing kind of an umbrella of 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 religious denominations, then then I think there is some comfort there. Let me ask you this. I, I just thought of this question now. I don't know how I would answer it. Let's imagine there's like a secular city, right? The whole city is secular. Nobody believes anything supernatural. Would there be a chaplain in those hospitals to sit with you? Or would that be entirely replaced by therapists? Hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So my answer would be there should be someone, what that title is, who the hell knows, but there should be someone who can sit with you for a moment uh, at least because right. If there's one guy in the hospital, he has to make his rounds and go to all the rooms. Mm -hmm. So it's not like you can sit here and have them for three hours, but there should be somebody. You should have access to people who sit with you and help you process what's going on and who look you in the eye and sit in space with you and go, I can only imagine how hard that is and have some training to be able to give not only just advice, but, just support and and care and concern that every human being should get in hard situations. Yeah. If I were to like have my magical secular city, that's perfect. Right. This utopia. And I was at this hospital. I think I would want a social worker because a social worker also helps you get access to all kinds of resources. Right. So a social worker, definitely. And then as far as like someone to sit with me, if it was like even more traumatic than, than what I went through, because obviously she's going to recover. So um, I don't think I'll have a lot of long-term trauma, but let's say that she had died or something. Who would I really want there? And I think I would want a therapist, like a PTSD therapist, more than some kind of spiritual chaplain person. Yeah. I think, I think that would fill that for me personally. Yeah, I agree with you. I think a thousand years from now, as religion, again, the the other thing I say that a little bit tongue in cheek, because I also know that systems overthrow each other, start over again, overthrow each other, start over again. So there's this idea in our heads that we're just going to slowly progress and a thousand years from now is going to be a better thing. And the reality is we might be hunter gatherers again. Uh, because things happen that throw systems off and new systems come up. And it, it and if you kill enough people at once with like a meteor hitting the planet or something, then you essentially start all the way back over in the, in the Stone Age. Um, you, you turn into an apocalyptic world. But if things got better and better, there is going to be something to replace it. Religion is dying in the present moment. If that pace continues, there will need to be something that fills that role in the future. Yeah, I think... Like a, a therapist who specializes in, in trauma and relationships and that kind of thing. I would talk to that person. 100% I would have talked to yeah. that person yeah. more than the chaplain who came and visited me. Completely. All right. The second thing that's related is sacred contemplative space. So one thing that religions do is provide sacred spaces, right? When I travel, even as a secular person, I like to visit whatever the church is, whatever the mosque is, whatever the synagogue, whatever the thing is, I want to go check it out because, you know, people put a lot of effort into these contemplative spaces. And um, I just, I like to visit them when I travel. And so we were in two hospitals um, 
for my daughter and both hospitals had set aside a sacred space. So the one in Boise was very Christian, had a cross, pews, Bibles. It was very set up for a Christian person to go somewhere to pray and read the scriptures and see the cross and do all that kind of stuff. Um, and then in Seattle, which is a much more, you know, liberal and secular society, it had um, the the sign to the door. And of course, I'm paying attention to these things. I'm paying attention to my daughter, but I'm yeah. also paying attention to these things. I do this and too, you by would the too. Way. And you would too. I yeah. know you would too. Yeah. And so we walk by the room and I'm like tagging it and I go back and visit it later. And it says chapel and meditation space. And the chap, and it's more like a, it looked more like a yoga studio is what it looked like. And there were cushions for meditation and like once a week. So I looked at the schedule and once a week they had like a mass and uh, then they had like a non-denominational speaker once a week. And then three times, three or four times a day, they had a meditation um I don't know. I, don't, I didn't visit it. So I don't know if it was zoomed in or recorded or someone was there, but they had meditation classes. And so it was really interesting to see the difference between these two hospital contemplative spaces was that one was just, it looked straight out of 1850. I mean, just pews and the cross and the whole thing. And then the other one was much more geared towards meditation and for contemplation. And it had, um, you know, it just looked like a yoga studio. And so it was really interesting to, to see that. But it is one thing that religions do, which is provide sacred spaces. And, and we're now seeing, uh, I think meditation is one of those ways that um, secular spaces can provide that as well. But it was interesting to watch. Yeah, when I was um, a leader in the religious faith I came from, I would often have to go and I say have to, it was part of the the calling was to go and visit uh, older members in the nursing home nearby. And uh, they had a chapel, very religious oriented. You walked in and it was uh, the weirdest thing. It was a shroud of Turin, uh, like a 17 by 24 picture on the wall. And if you walk to one side of the room, it looked like the shroud of Turin. And it was one of those, if you walk to the other side of the room, it would slowly shift and change. And then it was the face of Jesus. Right. And it, it just made it clear that this is a religious space. And uh, as I was uh, serving in the capacity I was at when I was going, I was also deconstructing my system and deconstructing Christianity at large. And I just realized how off-putting that would have been to any other religious system or atheist. And then I, when my mom was dying, we were in a hospice facility and uh, they had, um, I forget what they called it. They might've still called it a chapel but it was full of books on death and dying. It was full of uh, books, uh, poems of uh, support. Uh, there was a piano in the room if someone wanted to play. Uh, they brought a person in every day to do something. So the, the one I, that sticks out in my mind was some guy came in who played Native American flutes for like three hours. And it was, because uh, my mom's over, you know, my mom's 25 feet away heading out of this world. And I, there are moments where you're overwhelmed. And I just remember sitting in this chair for several hours, just enjoying mm. the soft sound of, of a Native American flute. Um, going forward, you're right. As people become more progressive, 
we're going to create spaces where every human being has something in that room that supports them or offers a space where they can do it their way because that's what this is all about is individual spirituality you and i aren't telling people how to do it we're suggesting things to think about so that they can come up with better ways to do it on their own and um these rooms need to cater to an individual to give space for all kinds of ways that people show up in grieving or stress or fear um, and hurt and have something there to help them. Yeah. So interesting. I love, I love when you dip into memories that are really tender. Um, Yeah. And it really goes into what we're doing on this podcast, which is like, don't throw away the whole system. Don't throw away that room, right? Don't what that room in the hospital that has the cross on it. Like don't throw the room away. Just like you said, can we replace some of the Bibles with a book on death and dying? Can, instead of this mass this week, can we have someone come in who does grief meditations where you're sitting with heavy emotions or someone come in and share, share music because, you know, art is always a way to, to process and feel feelings. And so it's, it's like, we're, we don't want to throw away these rooms. We don't want to throw away prayer. We don't want to throw away, um, chaplains, you know, these are probably really beautiful people, you know, going door to door because they really care about people. Let's not throw all that away. Just can we do it in a way that, um, you know, it's just more intellectually sound that fits a, a, a wider variety of people that doesn't require you to believe in the supernatural in order to get that tool. So yeah, don't, don't throw that room away. Just, just, you know, can we do this better? And that's, you know, that's what we're always trying to do. Totally. So the last one, um, oh, someone wrote working a garden. Yeah, gardens are great. I've also seen at hospitals labyrinths, which are really cool. Labyrinths are really great. Um, when there's a labyrinth world map, and sometimes when I'm traveling somewhere, I'll see if there's one nearby. I really like doing labyrinths. It's a really great secular kind of spiritual space. Have you ever done labyrinth work? Have you ever walked one? No, I've had a friend or two talk about them, um, but no, I've I've never I've seen them. I've, they're they're not super big, but they're like little mazes that are take up a fifteen by fifteen area, and you really in some of these you really can see that you're not in a you know you're just the the maze walls are only inches high, yeah. but it gives you a chance to be present as you work your way through it. Yeah. Um, it's not like you're actually in a corn maze or something where you can't see, but yes, I, I've oh, seen Oh, I, I would not have a spiritual experience in a corn maze. I would probably die in there. My, my sense of direction is so bad, but labyrinths are really great. So, all, you know, all you're doing is that when you walk into a, the maze, you're walking towards the center. And so all you're doing is kind of saying into yourself, what are the truths? What's really going on at my center here? So it's really, um, a way to open up a conversation with your subconscious, right? So you're walking and you're just allowing things to come to mind. What's really going on at my core, you know, putting away all the logistics and things that I have to get done. What's really going on with my core right now. And then you kind of walk to the core as you're doing this. So it gives your body something to do. Right. And then um, when you get to the center, you kind of spend some time there and it's really like spending some time in your own center but it gives you a, it gives you something to work with, something physical to work with. And then when you're done, you turn around. Yeah. So when you, you're done, you turn around and you walk back out and that's, 
you know, how can I reintegrate whatever truth, whatever thing I'm feeling back into the world. And so it's a great, it's a great exercise. It's very meditative. It's very, um, opens up really great communication. You don't have to do anything supernatural for it. People like, you know, Thomas McConkie or whatever, they're always building labyrinths wherever they go. Um, and so I've seen hospitals have labyrinths and I see people, even people, you know, who are hooked up to IVs will walk them. And yeah, so it's like, don't, don't replace the, the altar with the cross. Just can we have some other more, you know, non-supernatural ways of accessing these tools of sacred space or whatever we're talking about? All right. So oh, yeah, essentially needed, give people, as I say, give people the space to step outside of the, the normal mindset of where what's going on and be able to just get away from it for a moment. Like it's, it really is important for humans to be able to get away from the stress of whatever's going on, to have some solitude, to have a pause, because then you re-enter back into the space of trauma and you have a, just a little more strength now to re-engage it and be with it for a while. Mm -hmm. um, we've got to give humans the ability to deal with stressful situations. And this was one of them. I was going to put the, uh, let me get rid of that for a second, but there's one from a hospital. Yeah. I've seen um, them in more and more hospitals because, yeah. and, and the reason these things are at hospitals is because you're right. You know, if you go and you, um, you walk your labyrinth, you take a breath, you are a little bit more on top of things, your healing actually does scientifically get better when you are, you know, we're not robots, you know, we're not going to a hospital and you just plug into the tubes and whatever happens is going to happen. No, we're, we're emotional creatures. And the more that we do to, you know, process trauma and deal with things and talk to people and all these kinds, you know, it really, it really is healing. There's something in our DNA that, you know, you, when someone puts their hands on your body to try to heal you, it's, it is healing in some way, even without it being supernatural, because we're just, we're just such social beings and we're emotional beings and it's all connected. And so we're just trying to access that in better ways. So the last one I have is death. And, uh, you know, as far as what religions do for us in society in times of trauma, now my daughter didn't die. And I actually haven't been through a death of someone really, really close to me, you know, where I would kind of grieve them every year at that time and go through all that. I um, have been very privileged in that way. And so I'll have to defer to you. I know every time you talk about your mother, it's still tender. But when we thought that she was dying in those first couple of days, and I didn't, I didn't let myself go too far down this road because I don't want to, I didn't want to spend a lot of time kind of imagining what is, but looking back now, if she had died, most of my friends and family in the area would have expected kind of a Mormon funeral with certain social norms, right? You wear this kind of thing. We sing this song. We dress her in this. We give flowers. We have a reception. And I've never been myself. I've never been to a funeral that wasn't outlined like this. And I see why even non-believers in times of death or marriage will show up to their local church or whatever church they were in as a kid, because otherwise you have to create 
a funeral or a wedding from scratch. And I understand yeah. that we are as humans, like that's hard making things from scratch and reinventing the wheel. Every time you want to do something that's an uphill road. And so I, I do think now, what would I have done if she would have died? Because it would have felt very inauthentic to go to my local church, a church that she's really never gone to, had no association with and celebrated her that way. That would have felt very inauthentic to me. And so I would have had to, and I'm thinking about this now, I would have had to come up with some kind of ritual where my friends and family could have gathered to, um, to celebrate her. And I don't know what that would have been. I would have had to like make up one, right? Because I, I don't know what that would be. And so that is one thing that religions do is that in times of death, they've got that down to a science. This is what we do. Everybody does their thing and we'll all process this. And everybody kind of knows their job on what to do for those things. And so when you don't have that, you know, I think the secular world is still processing how do we do marriages and how do we do death? Um, because there's really no ritual that we're all doing. Everybody's kind of trying to recreate the wheel on that one. So what would you, what would you do if you had to plan a funeral now for someone yeah. in your family? I, I officiated my own mother's funeral. Oh, you did. Um, so yeah, tell us about that. So I, you know, again, we come from this system that tells us don't celebrate your loved ones passing too much. In fact, save some time to share the gospel message, right? Right. That's our story, and I even right? Knew, and I even knew when I first joined Mormonism, I, you know, you know me, I hate even saying the word. Um, when I joined the system I was a part of for two decades, uh, right away, I recognized that there was something unhealthy about that. There was something about taking this moment where loved ones get together to try to make sense of it and to cope and to move on. And instead it hijacks it and says, don't spend too much time on this person. What's more important is the message we have to share. And uh, so when, when I left, uh, I was adamant that any funeral I had any chance to be a part of would not do anything near that. So when my mom passed, um, I wanted, I wanted my, I wanted the right things to be said about my mom. And so my brother, my dad and me worked out what, we wanted that to look like, and I officiated it and, and it worked out. Cause usually I don't keep just, you know, talking about stuff, I get kind of worked up. Um, I tend to get really sentimental and not be able to get things out. I just cry too much. But in this instance, I, I just zoned in and said, I got to do it. It has to, I can't, I can't let my mom down by crying my eyes out the whole time and not being able to talk. So it was short. I, I've always thought funerals were way too long. So it was short. Um, and when it ended, our entire family went to a pub and uh, um, I had prearranged for food to be available and everybody paid for their own drinks, tons of alcoholic beverages. And what ended up happening was there were 50, 70 people there that were deeply intertwined in my mom's life. And we just laughed and we we cried and we just told stories and uh, I, I couldn't have thought of a better way to do it. Mm, that's really beautiful. Yeah. Anyway, I, I think people ought to just take charge. And if you have responsibility to take charge, don't, don't push yourself into a situation where you don't, yeah. but, but where you do make it 
make it what you think that person or what you need it to be, be, and yeah, don't worry about what other people tell you. That's the cost about having a pre-written system, right? So if you have pre-written way of how you serve and how you process death and how you pray, then like, yes, you have something and that's good. We do need something, but it becomes very inauthentic. And so you, um, for me, you know, my husband and I both have in our will that we want to be cremated because I was at, at the very beginning of my faith transition when I was transitioning and my husband was not, um, I became aware that if I died, like what an insult to my memory to dress me up in this certain thing and put me, you know, have my funeral at the church and use my death to support some kind of, you know, system and story and everybody feels Even better because the they hear the story. And I like, I was so angry that I knew that if I died, that would happen that I like, it was one of the first things I did. Like you will not, I don't care that I'm dead. I don't care that I don't even think I'll be a soul watching this. You will not use my death to support this story that I have a hard time with because what an insult to my memory that would be. And so being cremated was one of the first things that I wanted to be clear because yeah, because it was so shocking that we um, it's this spiritual bypassing that we've all kind of bought into, which is we're going to go to the funeral and we'll tell the story about how they're in heaven and we'll all take our little drug, you know, and that feels better. And then, yeah, we don't cry too much because they're with Jesus now. And then we move on with our lives. And it's like this huge societal spiritual bypassing that happens. And what then happens now is that I get clients all the time who come in and say, you know, my dad died before my faith transition. And now I need to grieve him for the first time, because when you spiritually bypass it, you're just saving that grief for later because you've never processed it. And so doing your own funeral, yes, it's more work. Some of these things do take more work than the script given to you. But the result is you have something a lot more authentic to that person's life. And isn't that what it's more about, you know? Yeah, we come from a system that even uses someone's death in the clothing they wear in that funeral as a way for judgment and shame about them and judgment and shame about any of us who aren't wearing the outfit that's been placed on them. So if they don't have it, you walk, yes. if you walk by the coffin and they're just wearing a normal outfit in our system, we know what that means. Right. And if they're wearing the right outfit and you're not, when you walk by, you know what that mm, means. Mm -hmm. it, yes. it, there's, there's so many ways that the system goes like, mm, shame mm. on them, shame on you. Yeah. yeah. It's that it's, it's, there are tools in the system, right? Cause like thinking that they're with Jesus right now, that is a soothing tool for dealing with death but you have to buy into the system in order to get that tool. Right. Mm -hmm. And so it's always comes at this really high cost and you can so go by around that cost. Yeah. So. Cremation bypasses that like it bypasses their bypassing. Right. And it basically gives them a middle finger, which says, yes, you already, you already know what, you know, my story. This I'm is on the air. This. If someone tries to do a funeral, you know, it's on record. That is not my wish and intention. I wish my dust to go back to the earth. Love it. Anyway, so I was thinking about what I would have done, like if she would have passed. And I saw this one uh, ritual done for a funeral where, um, you know, you gather together and this is one where they had been cremated and each of their loved ones said like their favorite memory or thing about them. And they were wearing a scarf 
And so you pass it to the next person and they put on the scarf and they say a memory. And then, you know, at the very end, they kind of give that scarf to mom. And it's like something for her to hold, like, oh, all these people remembered all these good things about my child or whatever. And so I probably would have done something like that. I would have taken the time to make some ritual that no one in my family had ever done before, but one that hopefully would have brought me more peace than taking her back to the church because I had no other option or like I couldn't, you know, that I would have rather made up something like that than to take her into a place that was inauthentic. But I know sometimes non-believers just because not everybody has time to, you know, or cares like you and I do, because we're always thinking about these kinds of things that they'll just kind of show up at the church just because that's how things are done. And, um, but when you take the time to do it in an authentic way, I think there's a great benefit and blessing. Yeah. Uh, we can move on, but I've got so many thoughts there that it would be a tangent. So I think, so the rest of my outline here is basically me in the hospital. Um, I've got chaplains. I've got the chapel downstairs. I have people praying for me. I have people telling me to like repent and turn to God. I have like, I'm thinking about how I would do a funeral. Like I'm really just surrounded by still religion, right? Even in this, you know, hospital setting. And so the rest of my notes here are just, I really began to think, how did we come to imagine God so strongly that we have literally built human societies around it. So I'm at this hospital. I never declared that I was a person of faith, but there is literally religion, you know, just all around me because it's really just part of the system. Right. And so, um, you and I started talking and sending podcasts to each other. And so the rest of my notes are about, um, you know, how did we come to imagine God so strongly that here I am in this hospital room and, even though it's a very medical place, I'm still surrounded by crosses and chapels and this kind of thing. And so I think we're already an hour and a half in. I think we'll, we can save that for next time because I don't want to go over these briefly. So there are five or six kind of prevailing theories. And I think I want to have more time to dive into those. And so let's maybe save those for next time because it's going to be such a fun dive with you, Bill, to go into like, how did we get here? Yeah, I agree with you. So uh, let me just say this off the air, we were talking about future episodes and what we do and when would you want to try to cover this maybe next Friday instead? Yeah, yeah, let's do so that. Because I, yeah, I don't want to I don't want to skip over. This is good stuff that we have notes yeah. on. Um, but I, I know that we're out of time for today. And I don't want to yeah. go over this quickly. But so yeah. next so next week, be sure to tune in because of we what what all these experiences led me to is I really want to understand better not just how we came to, you know, I, I have an, I have an understanding of, of religions and their histories and their founders, but why did we come to believe in God so strongly that I'm surrounded by people's supernatural worlds all the time? And it's bumping into me now at the hospital when I'm just trying to save my daughter's life through mostly science, let's <laughs> be fair, yeah. you know? So, uh, yeah, so we have, um, a lot of thoughts from people like Reza Aslan and other researchers who really get into the history of God and the history of religion and why we feel so strongly about the supernatural, so much so that it's really just built into our society. Yeah, it will be a nice build off of this one where we talked about 
what those systems do provide, whether it's working and whether it's not. And now we'll get into kind of how we got there. How did we get to a place where humans invent language, they invent gossip, they invent myth, and then those certain kinds of myth stories survive and certain kinds of myth stories die out pretty quick. And what kind of God and what kind of system prevails, even, and I'm not talking about particularly one religion, I'm saying what kinds of religions have had staying power and which ones have died out fast? And why are the ones that are around right now, the ones that are around right now? And yes. I think this will be a great conversation. And so it's going to be, like you said, it's going to be, it's really a new way to look at religion because we had to have Charles Darwin first. <clears throat> and then once we have Charles Darwin, we not only began to look at, um, you know, biology in the sense of evolution, but we also started to think why certain religions gave us an evolutionary advantage and what was it that caused those. And so it's looking at religion as if it were a virus, like looking at ideas as if they were a virus and sometimes they die out and sometimes they spread super fast. And so there's five or six theories that we're going to go over as far as like, why, why did these ideas spread? And we're so sure, you know, you meet people, I meet people every day who are so sure of their supernatural world. And how did, how did we get here? And so I'm going to be really curious to see like of the five or six that we have notes on, you know, which ways that you lean, but we'll save that all for next week because I don't want to rush that. And just thank you for everyone who's listening. And especially those people who reached out this past month, it has meant a lot to me and Bill and I will still be here doing fun conversations because this is a part of our spiritual spirituality now too. Right. Hartley, I'm, I'm glad you're back. And um, just to tease out, you mentioned the virus thing. Uh, I'll leave this kind of as my closing comment. And then if you've got anything else, great. If not, we'll, we'll close the show, but um, recognize that if we see religious systems as the only thing they care about is that the belief gets passed on. So how much trauma someone carries doesn't necessarily matter individually. Uh, how much hardship one has, whether one is given the best tools doesn't really matter. The only thing that matters is that that person has children and passes the virus on to them. And so long as the virus can be continually passed on and spread, there's very few other things that a real virus or a system trying to pass on beliefs cares about um, as long as it's working, right? And, and how it's working is defined differently. But um, next week will be an exciting conversation. And, and again, glad you're back and uh, I'm glad things have progressed and improved so significantly that all of us are in amazement at uh, that and uh, grateful that um, the universe did what it did. <laughs> Yep. All right. Thanks, everyone. And we will see you next week for an awesome episode. Okay. Take it easy. Bye. This has been another Almost Awakened episode. Check us out at almostawakened.org, where you can check out past episodes, make a donation to keep this podcast running, email us a question or comment, or find out more about the resources shared in today's episode. For coaching opportunities or extra support, visit nonsensespirituality.com to meet with certified spiritual director Brittany Hartman.